We're going to continue in a series of messages from the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of Moses. Uh, Today, uh, we'll be in this first section of chapter four, Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 through 14. Uh, If you would like to follow along in a printed copy, we have some pew Bibles there. It'll be on page 139. And it'll also be on the screens. I'd ask that you join me in standing as we read God's word in honor of it. It's a longer section of scripture. I will not read all of it, but I'll read just a few verses that I think summarize this passage of scripture very well. This is the perfect word of our perfect God. Please give your attention to it. Verse one. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Verse five, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Verse 13 and 14, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the 10 commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of his word. I'd like to encourage you for a few minutes from a very simple phrase. Just do it. Let's pray. Father, we are your children upon the earth and how grateful we are every time we have the opportunity to hear your word, to be gathered with our brothers and our sisters, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And now, Lord, as we sit under your word, may you do the preaching, may you do the teaching, may your spirit fill us, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. May the preacher decrease that Christ might increase. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you. The most watched event in American television history. Know what it is? Super Bowl 49. February 1st, 2015. This particular Super Bowl was between the Seattle Seahawks and New England Patriots. Seattle had a two-score lead heading into the fourth quarter, but the Patriots were mounting a comeback. And 120.8 million viewers watched in suspense as the game drew to its closing seconds. Seattle, by this point, was down 24 to 28. But they had the ball. They had one timeout. And they had 26 seconds left on the clock. And they were on the one-yard line. One yard. All they had to do was hand it off to their four-time Pro Bowl all-star running back, Marshawn Lynch, otherwise known as Beast Mode. Amen. Just hand it to Beast Mode. Give it to him, and you will be Super Bowl champions. This man could sneeze his way forward for one yard. It's one yard. But we know the story. 
Seattle chose to pass the ball and it was intercepted. New England ran out the clock. They won Super Bowl 49 and the rest is history, right? That is still regarded as one of the worst play calls in football history. But from it today, even today, we can learn a very important lesson. Just do it. When you know what you ought to do, when you have the ability to do it, just do it. When the end zone is one yard away, or in this case, in our text, when the promised land is is one step away, don't overthink it, don't hesitate, don't get creative and just make something up. Keep it simple. Just do it. Uh, Where are we by the time we reach Deuteronomy chapter four? The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have grown from one family to a great nation. As God promised they would be, they are as numerous as the sand on the shore. And now it is their time to enter the long-awaited promised land. As God's holy people, they were now receiving his covenant promise. But Moses, their leader, he stops and and he reminds them of a concept that we sometimes take for granted. This duty of obedience. Moses, as you may recall, is speaking from personal and pastoral experience. I may remind you, Moses is not going into the promised land with them, is he? And why isn't he? Is it because he's too old, too frail? Disobedience. Uh, So he's speaking from personal loss. Obedience matters to God. Disobedience has consequences. And so what we have in Deuteronomy 4, and really the entire book of Deuteronomy, is an elder statesman urging his nation, obey the Lord. And and one way for us to determine the central idea of the text, I'm a main point kind of guy. I like to, what is this passage about? That's the way I read the Bible, that's the way I preach the Bible. One way to determine what that is, is to look for repeated words, phrases, ideas, themes. And we, we saw several of them, even in the reading uh, that I was giving at the beginning. It's really just one. Look at verse one with me. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you in what? Think about them? Contemplate them? No, do them. Moses is urging them. As God's own people, it is right, it is fitting that you do what your Lord commands. In essence, he's saying, just do it, which leads to the point of the entire message today. As God's own people, let's do what he commands. Now, some of you may be sitting in your seat, thinking to yourself, ah, that's nice. Only problem is, You're not Moses, you'd be right about that. And and we're not Israel. This is a different passage, this is a different time. How is this text relevant to us today? Others of you may be thinking, I thought we were saved by grace. Why are we even in the law? Doesn't John say in John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ? The Bible does say that. And that is a glorious 
truth. This truth that I hope I will emphasize again and again, it is not the works of the law. It's not our obedience that makes us acceptable to God. But the fact that you are saved by grace through faith doesn't erase your responsibility to obey God, amen? In fact, it amplifies it. John also wrote in John 14, 15, these words from our Lord, very familiar to us. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what the Lord does in that passage and all throughout his ministry is he confronts our wrong thinking. He corrects us. He helps us to see that there is no dichotomy between loving God and obeying God. No, we love him because he first loved us, but we demonstrate our love to him through our obedience to what he says. And we may think, oh, just wait a minute, wait a minute. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And we read those verses and we think, yes, salvation by grace through faith, amen, praise the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we often forget that after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, there's verse 10 where Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's my point? That followers of Jesus obey their Lord. Jesus didn't die only to forgive us of our sins. He did that. But his death also purchases our freedom. His death purchases our freedom to live a life that's pleasing to him. And that's what we're talking about today. But how does he do it? Does God just drop us off in the promised land and say, just do it, now go. You know what you need to do, do it. <laughs> and leave us to our own devices. Does God do that to us? No. No, he, he helps us. He resources us. He is with us as we obediently follow him. And what I'd like to do today is consider resources that God gives to us, his people, as we obey him. What are, what are, what are the means by which we're able to obey God? Three of them we'll look at today from this passage, Revelation, Promise, and communion, and, and, and my hope is that after hearing this message, you'll be eager for radical obedience. You'll be ready to do what God has called you to do. So let's look at the first resource for our obedience. It is revelation, revelation. And I want you to consider this thought with me. God has spoken to us. Look at verse 12 of Deuteronomy four. This is what Moses says, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Consider how great a treasure it is, beloved, to have the voice of the Lord. We marvel at singers who sing at American Idol. We had a guy from American Idol on this stage a few weeks back. 
singing and praising the Lord. And we marveled at his voice, the gift that God had given him. We watched TV shows. There's even a TV show called The Voice. You've seen this. They're sitting with their backs turned and they hear a voice. It's so wonderful. And they press the button, they turn around. I gotta see who this person is making this sound. But can you imagine what an experience it is to hear the very voice of God himself? I've shared with you my own experience of hearing God speak to me. It was something of an introduction to encourage you to read the word. It's my conviction that God speaks in and through his word. Amen. But even when we think God is leading us or speaking to us from other sources, we need to make sure that even those sources line up with what is written. We need to make sure that scripture is our authority. And why is it so important? Why do we emphasize scripture so much at Hillcrest? Well, because I've been saying it's the literal voice of God. Consider with me 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Something of a foundational passage for our understanding of God's word. The Bible says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That phrasing, all scripture, leaves nothing out. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. I remember being in vacation Bible school. My mom taught me in order all the books of the Bible. <laughs> all of them, Ma, are inspired by God and profitable, right? Even those parts that we often don't read, like Deuteronomy, for instance. And what do we mean by breathed out by God? Some of your translations may say inspired by God or given by inspiration of God. Uh, which is okay, I suppose. Please don't get mad at me if you're a King James only person. No, it's not that he inspired the word, took it in. Paul's point is that God breathed it out. The very words of God breathed out from his lips, as it were, are what we have recorded in our scripture. God breathed it out and men wrote it down. Y'all believe that? Amen? So, as it has been said, I will say again, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible. And if you want to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. It is literally God's breath to us, his voice to us, and it is sufficient for us. But it is also a uh, resource for our obedience. And everybody who's been to the grocery store let's just say, sent to the grocery store by someone else at their home. I won't mention any names today. You know what it's like to be sent on a mission with no revelation as to what you're going to do. Uh, it, it can be very frustrating. I've spent hours in the grocery store. That's something of an exaggeration. But a long time, it felt like wandering in the wilderness 40 years. Few things are worse than having something to do with no instruction as to how to do it. But hear me this morning, Hillcrest. God hasn't left us in the dark, has he? We're not ignorant as to what pleases God, are we? Micah 6, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God, amen? Scripture is sufficient, but it's complete, it's unchangeable as well. We have all the revelation we need, but it also cannot be altered. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. Moses continues, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Uh, Every day, even today, as we engage the scripture, there is a tendency. It was for them, it's also for us, to add to scripture. And how do we do that? We, 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 we seek to elevate voices that we like, and all of us have voices that we like, people that we admire, that we respect. And, and, we, and we raise their voice sometimes to the point where it's authoritative, almost equal with scripture. Hear me, friends. No parent, no teacher, no, no pastor, no politician, no spouse. No one is inerrant and infallible. And so you make sure that whoever it is that you're listening to, you judge what they say by what is written in God's word. Would you agree? Likewise, just as we tend to add to scripture in certain ways, we also have this tendency to wanna to take away from scripture. We We remove parts that we don't like. These are often commands, things that we just would rather not do. When we do this, we are much like Thomas Jefferson, who literally cut out parts of Scripture that he didn't agree with. You can go to Barnes & Noble today and buy a Jefferson Bible, and you'll see parts that he didn't agree with, miracles that he didn't believe happened that he just removed from the Scripture. I will say no No, no, we must take all of the scripture, all of it, because all of it is breathed out by God. All of it is profitable for us. It is sufficient. It is complete. It is unchangeable. But finally, it is actionable. Actionable. Listen to what James says to us in James chapter one, very familiar passage. James says, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once forgetting what he was like. But the man who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Bible says he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed how? In his doing. Another way of saying this, and this is something of the point that I'm making, the blessing of God. Anybody want the blessing of God today? The very blessing of God comes to us as we travel on the path of obedience. As we follow the good shepherd, Psalm 23 language. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us. But there is another impediment to our obedience. Sometimes we just don't know what the will of the Lord is, and so we need to read the scripture. Other times, we just don't believe the Lord. It's unbelief. Other times, we don't obey God because we don't believe that his will is better for our lives than our own will. We don't trust him. And so 
God knowing that we are that way, that we have those tendencies, he gives us another resource. This is resource number two, his promise. I'd like to spend most of my time here today, the promise of God. God is gracious to us. Perhaps the last thing you would expect to hear about a sermon on obedience is grace, 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 but that is what you're gonna hear today. Look at verse 13 of Deuteronomy 4. Just that beginning phrase, Moses says, and he declared to you his, say it with me, covenant. What in the world is a covenant? A covenant is a legally binding agreement between two parties. God's covenant with Israel is the primary concept used to describe his relationship with his people. All sorts of covenants in scripture take me hours to just explain all of this, but I'll simplify it and say I believe that it begins with the covenant God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. It was a covenant of works. It's very simple. Obey me, Adam, and you will live. Disobey and you will die. Is that not what Jesus said, what the Lord said to him in the garden? The day, the very day that you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And the bad news is that Adam broke that covenant. And we, the children of Adam, have broken it as well. But aren't you glad God made another covenant? Aren't you glad that God's gracious? He made another legally binding agreement. And even in Genesis 3, that awful chapter of scripture where we see the fall of man and the consequences for sin, we see also a promise. The, the very seed of the gospel and promise form. He says in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. Now, I'm not a biologist, but I do know this. Women don't have seeds. They have eggs. Men have seed. And yet God is, he's speaking accurately. He's revealing something to us. He's revealing to us the covenant of grace, this legally binding agreement that God has made within his, himself to send us a savior, to not leave us in sin and misery. And God makes all kinds of covenants in the Bible, we see, for instance, in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant promise to Noah and to all humanity that he will never again send a worldwide flood. Anyone remember the sign of that covenant? It's the rainbow. It's a pity that that sign has been perverted today. But it's God's sign of his covenant of grace. And we need to reclaim that. Why is this so important? Why am I even talking about covenant? Well, our text mentions the word covenant. But here's my point. Ours is a promise-giving and promise-keeping God. God doesn't go back on his word. He doesn't fail to deliver on his promise. He has a 100% success rate. God is faithful, and he keeps his promises. And he kept this promise all the way. That was made all the way back and. Genesis 3.15, and it took 42 generations, y'all. But God made good on that promise to send the seed of the woman. He sent his son to be born of a virgin. Now it makes sense. To live under the law and perfectly obey the law. This Jesus went to Calvary's cross 
And he died in the place of sinners like you and me. And the Bible says he was buried in Joseph's tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. And he ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. My point is he kept his promise. But here's the supporting point today, the perhaps crescendo point. God calls us, his people, his covenant people, to be faithful to the promise as well, to live in a way that's fitting of the covenant people of God. In a word, God expects us to obey his commands. You know, the day in which we live, we, this idea of covenant is kind of lost on us. We have a hard time understanding it. We don't really think a lot about it. <clears throat> it's foreign to us. And then we go to a wedding. I'd be surprised if most of us didn't go to at least one wedding before the year is out. Uh, it's wedding season. Um, and what we see in a wedding is one man and one woman entering into a legally binding agreement before God and witnesses to be faithful to the obligations and the promises made, don't we? Every time we attend a wedding, what we see is a covenantal ceremony, the most sacred and special of all relationships. And just as God gave the rainbow sign as his covenant to Noah in a wedding, a sign is also given, a wedding ring, which doesn't fit me the same way it used to all those years ago. I, I went to Hellsburg and told them, your, your material just keeps getting smaller and smaller. It ain't the ring that's getting smaller, hint, hint. Um, but the point remains, this wedding ring is a covenant sign. And whenever there's an exchange of rings, there's a symbol and a pledge of constant faithfulness and abiding love. This is why Paul compares the husband and wife relationship to that of Christ and his church. And you're again, perhaps still thinking, why, why are you going on and on about covenant and covenant signs, promises? Because God doesn't say to Israel here in Deuteronomy 4, and he doesn't say to you, do these commandments and then I'll marry you. Be obedient and then I will enter into a covenant with you. That's the importance. God does not say that. What he says is I will enter into this covenant with you when you are disobedient. He marries us as the prophet Hosea did to Gomer when we are unfaithful, that's the amazing grace of God. The Bible says God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, amen? That's grace. That is what has been often called God's riches at Christ's expense. God set his love on us people who don't deserve it. It was true of the Israelites then. It is true of us today. And the covenant promise that he gave was that of land. Look at Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15 with me. The Lord said to Abram, he wasn't even Abraham yet, he was Abram. After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward for all the land that you see. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. My point is that God is gracious. 
I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Every time we see in the book of, of the scripture, God gives, God gives, we're demonstrating, we're seeing the grace of God demonstrated before us. For God so loved the world that he gave. That's grace. And even in Genesis 13, Abram didn't earn it. Abram didn't work for it. And though it took years and years, God gave fulfillment to his promise as a demonstration of his grace. And you may be thinking, well, this is great for Abram. That's great for the Israelites that once upon a time, God did demonstrate grace. He was gracious. But beloved, I didn't say God was gracious. God is gracious. It's who he is. It's his very heart. It's one of the most precious truths about him. If you are a born again believer in Jesus Christ, would you say amen this morning? God is for you. He makes and keeps promises for your good. And with respect to your everyday life, he promises to be gracious to you. Now, this grace is goodness for those who don't deserve it. It is often in our minds something we think of as past action. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved, past tense, a wretch like me. But I want to expand your thinking today. I want you to think more fully about the grace of God this morning because grace is also a help. It's a power. It's strength to do his will when we are most weak. This truth has transformed my life. This is what Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians 12. I challenge you to read it when you go home. Paul says to the Lord, I have this thorn in my flesh that is really painful. It's really burdensome to me. And I prayed over and over and over again. God, would you please remove it? And what did God say to Paul? No. And perhaps that's you. You, in your obedience to God, are struggling with some thorn, some issue. Be it physical, spiritual, emotional. And perhaps God has not been pleased to take it away from you. But I will encourage you, as Paul has encouraged me, he says, God didn't just say no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast in my weaknesses, in my calamities, in my trials, in my tribulations. Why? Because when I am weak, then I am strong. My point is that the grace of God wasn't just past tense, y'all. It's for us now, even as we obey him today in our everyday lives. Notice with me in Deuteronomy 4, the ongoing moment-by-moment -moment grace of God in Deuteronomy 4. Look at verse 1. He says, I am teaching you to do them that you may live and go in <clears throat> and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you is giving you, participle. Verse five, the land that you are entering. Verse 14, the land that you are going over to possess. 
This indicates moment by moment grace. This indicates that God is with us, not just in the past, but right now in the hour of temptation, in the hour of weakness, in the hour when we most don't want to obey him. He's helping us. He's giving us grace moment by moment. He doesn't just give us promises at the beginning and then leave us to figure it out. We trust the giving God by faith and he gives us grace to live lives that are pleasing to him. Do y'all believe that? My point is just that God doesn't just give us grace to forgive us of our sin. He gives us grace and power and help to live in obedience to him, to walk the walk of obedience by faith and his grace. This is the right of the Hebrews point in Hebrews chapter 11. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when God called him to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. It was true of the Old Testament saints back then. And it is true of us today. We are empowered by God for obedience to his commandments, not by works, but by faith alone. And so, to the high school graduate, we had graduate Sunday last week. To the graduates that are among us who are terrified about going to college as I was, or going to the workforce, my encouragement to you is to put your full trust in the God of all grace. And he'll give you wisdom and strength to succeed. To the single person who's longing to honor God and be pure in their singleness, rely on God's grace to supply you with his power made perfect in weakness. And to the parents who now have a teenager for the very first time and don't know who that person is anymore who's living in your house. Trust in God's moment by moment grace to help you in this time of need. Rely on promises like Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. How do I live it? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And so we start our Christian lives by faith in future grace we continue our Christian lives by faith in God's grace and we will finish strong in the Christian life by faith in God's grace, amen. Dr. John Piper said it well, I believe, when he said this, I conclude that the New Testament teaches us to obey the commandments of God by faith in future grace. The commandments of God are not negligible because we are under grace. They are doable because we are under grace. The new covenant gift of the Spirit is the power to obey the revealed will of God, but the path along which the Spirit comes and works is faith and future grace. And so remember, Jesus, in sending, uh, in sending Jesus to save us, God the Father showed his grace to us, but Jesus ascended and he poured out the Holy Spirit on his disciples, amen. And the promised Holy Spirit is the means by which we obey, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at a couple of resources already. We receive the revelation of God 
He has spoken to us. We rely upon the promises of God. He is gracious to us. And then lastly, let's rest in the presence of God, presence of God this morning. We have communion. God is near us. Look at verse seven of Deuteronomy four. A question that I think is so glorious. He says, for what nation, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? I won't dwell very long on this point. I think it's self-explanatory. But the final resource that I'll mention today is that of communion. Christ is with us. He indwells us by the Holy Spirit. And when I say communion, I mean friendship, fellowship relationship, closeness. Moses is saying the obedient life is meant to distinguish Israel from all other nations. God's nearness is a benefit that we have. He is immediately responsive to our prayers. Other nations lived in fear of their gods and, and they would try to appease their gods. They would cut themselves. They would offer their own children in the fire. But not Israel. He says, your God is near you. Their gods are distant uninterested, inattentive. Have you ever felt that way about the living God? You can admit it. Have you ever felt that way? I'm not saying has he ever been that way. I'm saying have you ever felt that way? That he forgot, he's forgotten you or he doesn't care about you. Part of my job today is to rightly represent the God of heaven. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the very presence of God dwelling within you and unlike the people of God in the old covenant we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and don't take my words for it look at what Jesus said in John 14 he said if you love me you will keep my commandments we saw that earlier but watch this and I will ask the father and he will give grace language he'll give you another helper to be with you how long forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. Christian, the spirit of the living God is dwelling in you even right now when you are aware of it and in those times when you are most unaware of it. So do what the passage says, call upon him. Pray for his presence as you seek to obey him. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, part of my problem is I'm not a Christian. There may be some in the sound of my voice that are not Christians today. And you may feel that you are as far from God as the prodigal son was from his father. We read that parable and we often forget that the great tragedy of the prodigal was not just that he was living in sin. He was far from his father. He said, he looked his father in his face and says, I wanna be as far away from you as I can possibly be. Can you imagine hearing your child say that to you? And he, and he gave him his inheritance and he went and we know the story. He wasted it on reckless living until he came to a point where he said, I wanna be near my father again. I wanna go home. And even if I'm not received as a son, I wanna go home. Can I just encourage any who is here today or listening to my voice who don't know the Lord by faith, can I just encourage you by saying salvation is as near to you now as it's ever been? Romans 10, 
What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord. Is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're in the sound of my voice now and you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, trust him. Turn from your sins. And the Bible says you will be saved. So my encouragement to you as we bring this to a close, all of us, particularly those of us who know the Lord, as we go on the pathway to obedience, may we trust in God's resources and not rely on our own strength. He's spoken to us, he's given us revelation. He's gracious to us, he's given us his promises. And he is with us. We have communion. We have his presence and his closeness. And so then, let us go forth and obey. This is God's word. And let all who agree say amen.